ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hey, welcome to another Minefield, everybody. It's a program where we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Now that I say it out loud, it's quite a weird sentence. Welcome to another Minefield, isn't it? Not usually welcomed into Minefields. This one, I suppose, is different on account of it being metaphorical. Well, Lee Daly is my name. Scott Stevens is my literal co-host. Hi, Scott. <laughs> hey, well, uh, these contortions at the starts of the show are beginning to get a little bit <laughs> ridiculous, but I... I appreciate it. I value it. I know that you think it's ridiculous. That's just the way things sound in my head, Scott. Okay. (laughs) This is what I live with. I was going to say, you know, if you just want to keep on this conversation, I'm happy to stand by and just yeah, wait till yeah. you finish. Do you know what? I remember, it was the 2004 election in the US, Bush mm. versus Kerry. Yep. And one of the criticisms that was made of John Kerry was that guy could <laughs> yes. debate himself for yes, 90 minutes. True. Do you remember that? It's true. I, I don't know if I, I must have told you this, but I, I reckon I was the only person in the world who heard that criticism and went, oh, I think that's quite impressive. (laughs) I quite like the idea of someone who can do that. There is actually, Um, it doesn't just come from, I think, intellectual humility, which believe it or not, and I know that you're not normally associated with intellectual humility, but I'll say it nonetheless. (laughs) No, no. I'm not saying that I don't associate you with. I'm just saying in the popular conceit. No, I was trying to make a clumsy joke there. Um, Hey, hey, before we we get in, can I just indicate to the audience what's coming up in the next few weeks? Nope. Let's get on with today. Oh. Oh, well, right. Go on. Um, Just a quick reminder. Waleed calls it the Minefield Not Quite Book Club. I don't like that. That's not officially what I call it. Well, it's kind of... Do I have to go back and figure out what I call it again? Well, (laughs) if we think about it as something like Minefield's intermittent forays into (laughs) works of art that tell us a great deal about the nature of the moral life. No. Hyphenate that. I'm sure that someone can turn that into a lovely German The title, the official title Mm. is Minefield Club for Books and Other Non-Book Cultural (laughs) Artifacts and the Discussion Thereof. Thereof. It's the thereof that makes it poetry. Yeah, that's in brackets, the last bit. Okay. Anyway, Anyway, another one of those is coming up. And I'm really excited about this one. Something so that am I. I know. Uh, you... Finally, I suggested one. <laughs> what do you mean? Uh, several. I, think I suggested two. Several of these have been yours, my good friend. Anyway, we've been wanting to venture outside of the literary arts and the televisual arts. Moving pictures, let's put it. Uh, we've wanted to move a little bit away from books. I think a poem might be somewhere in the future. I suspect that some piece of complex music might be somewhere in our future. What we want to do, as people who listened to last week's show would already be aware of, what we want to do in the first week of September is turn to a great work of art, a great painting by the Spanish, the 19th century pa- Spanish painter Francisco de Goya. It's a it's an astonishing piece from 1823, so this also has the added benefit of being two, 200 years since the painting was completed and revealed. It's Goya's depiction, his thoroughly transgressive, somewhat shocking, dark, haunting depiction of the god Saturn, or Kronos, consuming, devouring his own offspring. Um, it's going to be something else. I'm not going to say who our guest is. I'm really excited about it. It's not de Goya. I'll just say that. No. But it's the next best thing. So, Goya's Saturno. Mm. 
I suggest linger this with because... it. Linger with it. Yes, it, but it only takes a moment time... to be shocked by it, but linger with it. Yeah, but but at the same time, you can't complain. It'll take too long. No, it's true. In fact, you could, if you're listening to this as a podcast on your smartphone, do an image search on it right now, and you've already done your homework. Mm. But then, of course, you can go as deep as as you want into it. And I will say, I acknowledge with any visual arts, there is a difference between reproduction and original. And I'd seen this before, and I don't know that I was particularly moved by it. And then, it would have been 20 years ago, I found myself in Madrid, and I... I saw the original, mm. and I would say I have rarely been struck by a painting as much. Yeah. And I've seen a lot of paint, not, not in the way that I'm a connoisseur of visual art, but, I, you know, when you're overseas, you go to a lot of museums, right, and you see a lot of paintings. I'm in a room, and there's hundreds of paintings, and then there's another one with hundreds of paintings. It's rare to find one that arrests you in quite this way, at least the way that it arrested me. Uh, and I've seen some of the very famous ones. This one just stopped me in my tracks. Mm. I don't fully know why, so I'm not. that's not necessarily part of the discussion for when we do it, but it's just stayed with me ever since. So that's probably why I suggested it, because the effect that it had on me. It ended up being, I think, an inspired choice for all sorts of reasons we're going to talk about in a few weeks. But I think one of the things that's so interesting to me, it's very rare to see a painting where the darkness that is depicted in it is palpable. And I don't Mm. just mean the darkness as in the evil of it. I mean, there is a darkness, an absence of light Mm. that is not the absence of anything but the presence of something. There's so yes. much going on. And There's also startling light and intensity. There is. Well. Anyway, it's fun to do a painting as well. So it is. something quite different. This that. Is so when good. is that coming up? First week of September. If you just if you listen around then, you'll be sure to catch it on either the pod or the radio show. All right. Should we start? Yeah, please. So um, right. again, people who listened to last week's show would be aware that for a couple of weeks, we are taking a little bit of a sidestep. Not so much to abandon the task of moral discernment and deliberation, but to give topics that have achieved a kind of fresh pertinence, a fresh relevance, a fresh urgency in our time, a degree of depth and hopefully sophistication by casting the current topics that interest us in the light of two seismic, portentous decisions from the first half and then from the second half of the 20th century. So last week, we had a look at U.S. President Gerald Ford's momentous decision in September 1974 to pardon former resigned President Richard Nixon. And of course, the context for that was provided by the the rapidly multiplying indictments uh, facing former U.S. President and current U.S. presidential candidate Donald Trump. And I bet you will eat. I, I still don't know what I think about whether <laughs> Ford did the right thing, but it was a hell of a conversation. I'm really glad we had it. This week, let me start with the context. The context is provided by a renewed interest in, in a way that I don't think I've, I can remember people discussing for the better part of kind of two decades now, a renewed interest in the ethics of the construction of the atomic bomb and then the morality of the dropping of two bombs. I mean, technically speaking, one atomic, one plutonium, but we just let's just lump them both under the same category. Uh, the dropping of two bombs on uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, the first on the 6th of August, 1945, the second on the 9th of August, so three days later, uh, 1945. It was a decision taken. Was it a decision taken? That's going to be one of our topics by uh, then U.S. President Harry Truman, who succeeded Franklin Roosevelt, who had died in office. Truman had not been 
president for long, and he no doubt inherited a military program that was underway to construct these bombs. We can talk in a moment, if you like, about the circumstances in which they've they were constructed. But why is it that we're talking about it? Is it because there's new, some new nuclear threat on the horizon? No, it's because most of the people that I know, and I believe will lead all the people that you know, have been to see Christopher Nolan's latest film, Oppenheimer, which I should say you loved, you told me. Ooh. I despised it with a white hot really? intensity. I'm, Why is there something simultaneously shocking and not at all surprising? I'm a fan of Nolan for the most part, for the most part. Yep. I thought this film was reasonable in, in a number of crucial ways, not just in its writing, but also I thought there was a faux gravity. I thought there was a faux seriousness. It skimmed, ended up skimming over the surface of things that really were morally consequential and projected a kind of false depth by populating the film with seemingly grave or intellectually serious elements like, for instance, Oppenheimer reading the poems of T.S. Eliot, which, of course, he read, but that's just a throwaway scene, or having uh, Albert Einstein or Werner Heisenberg or Niels Bohr in walk-on roles, effectively, uh, or Harry Truman, for that matter, in walk-on roles, and in the end, ultimately saying absolutely nothing. And things that were really morally consequential including, I think, Oppenheimer's own complicity in an act of very, very grave evil. I'm not saying that he's sanitized. I don't think it's a hagiography. Uh, but there was far less tragedy at work, I think, in Oppenheimer's life and choices than the film depicted. And I think there's far more complexity, believe it or not, in some of Harry Truman's decision-making uh, than I believe the film depicted. I don't know if you want to take this anywhere, Willie, before we get into the actual decision. I don't know. I mean, I don't don't know how interested I'm in getting into an argument about a film. I just feel a bit like this is what bedevils any filmmaking on any true story, on any matter of consequence, and that is that the story is, if not infinite, then something approximating it. Mm, That's right. And the telling of it in the context of a film can only be finite. And so it's just an inevitability that criticisms will arise on the basis of where you didn't capture this or you didn't capture that or this was underplayed or whatever, which, of course, in the end are determinations that are, I think, probably every bit as subjective as the decision to cast it in the way that the Mm. filmmaker did. Could Could I push back just very slightly? So... At one point, and apologies for those who haven't seen the film, uh, I don't think I'm going to be giving anything away, but, you know, it's not exactly a cliffhanger. I thought at a very crucial point, what really was a note of tragedy, namely Oppenheimer's seemingly post hoc conflicted feelings about what it is that he had taken part in, was allowed to give way to, I think, what can only be called conspiracy. So the figure of Louis Strauss, played by Robert Downey Jr., uh, who's relentlessly cast in black and white, except for a couple... Magnificently played, by the way. Uh, I thought he was a Marvel supervillain. No. It was was superficial. It was superficial and preposterous that Oppenheimer's very real culpability and what really could have been cast as a moment of tragedy is then overwhelmed by this kind of breathy final hour where Oppenheimer needs to be taken down by a quote-unquote deep state operative. You've got these little flashes 
of conspiracy. You've got the casting of a of a Senate hearing in black and white, and then the little portentous reference to JFK as having a decisive role, which he didn't really have a decisive role at all in turning down or in uh, scuttling uh, Louis Strauss's nomination as Secretary of Commerce. Uh, and then all of these things, a kind of petty disagreement, a petty slight that then turns into this conspiracy where a whistleblower, effectively, a, a clear-eyed prophet needs to be taken down in the interests of the military-industrial complex. That simply does not do justice, I think, to precisely how ensconced Oppenheimer himself was, uh, not just in the design of the bomb, but also in its implementation. Now, there's a degree of moral culpability there that adds, I think, an important note of tragedy. But that note of tragedy is then overwhelmed by, by being overtaken by this conspiracy in the last part of the movie, which is not just historically bogus, uh, but it's also aesthetically, in terms of the telling of the film, it ends up, it's not so much that the film did too little, Waleed, it's that it did too much. And that whole conspiratorial note was completely unnecessary, and I think so much more could have been done by way of explanation, by way of showing, by way of aesthetic power that really could have gotten to the heart of this very, very, very complex man. Yeah, I'm thinking more about your criticism of Truman's role in it. It's a minor role. I, I'm not sure it's saying as much as you're suggesting it's saying about Truman. Mm. So I don't think it's making a particular declaration no, about... No, that's right. Right. So... The choice to make Truman a fairly minor character... I've got no issues with that. Well, then what was your issue with Truman? Uh, that he was portrayed... So choices need to be made in any film, right? Things are left yeah. in, things are left out. My point is, the whole lot of conspiratorial crap that was left in in the last hour could have easily been done away with. And a little bit more, I think, simplicity, believe it or not, about Oppenheimer, and a little bit more complexity about Truman, and I left out the most important thing of all. Leslie Groves, played by Matt Damon, most people say that he had the most kind of stunning, arresting, important role in the film. There's a case for Leslie Groves to have been indicted as a war criminal. But there's a case for a lot of them. Well, yeah, but... Like, there I actually think that's part of an undertone of the film. Yeah. Don't you think? Can we I mean, get? A... I, th I think. I think in very short form. This takes us to today's topic. It does. I think, in, <laughs> I think in very short form, you could make the case that the film hints as much about Truman. Mm, that's right. I think you could make the case that it hints as much, even about Oppenheimer. Yep. Notwithstanding his remorse in the film. Mm. So, yeah, I'm just not sure what what observation you're making there. Like, of course. You could point to characters in the film and say, well, I reckon they might have actually been a war criminal, but I, I just don't know that you can make the argument that the film doesn't lead you to those thoughts. I think mm. it does. Mm. Mm. Doesn't it? Well, see, here I think Damon plays the role of a kind of foil to the overly serious, overwrought Oppenheimer. Uh, whereas, in fact, uh, Leslie Groves was... There was a complicity between the two. There was a meeting, if I can put it this way, of almost diabolical minds and diabolical intents uh, between Groves and Oppenheimer that it, at crucial points took the decision-making surrounding the dropping of the bomb out of presidential control. Can we get into today's topic? Because I think some of this is better prosecuted. Sure. Okay. So believe it or not, the 20th century decision we're looking at today is not Truman's decision to have the bombs dropped. But rather, it's the decision that was made by a 37-year-old 
uh, British moral philosopher a decade after. On the 1st of May, 1956, the doctors and masters of Oxford University convened in the old Bodleian Library. And it was their intention to vote on a proposal that was made by the vice chancellor to confer an honorary degree on Harry Truman uh, the following month, so June 1956. It's during a great ancient ceremony. It's held each year at Oxford. And it was to award him, to honor him for courageous leadership. And I think what's interesting is that the sole thing, given the fact that Truman came into the war late, I mean, he really sort of oversaw the tail end in many respects, both of the European and of the conflict in the Pacific. Um, The sole act, the sole decision that he was associated with was the decision to drop the bomb and the decision to enforce the unconditional surrender of uh, the Japanese nation. So there was no question that Oxford wanted to honor Truman for his role, for his courage in leadership in ordering that the bomb be dropped. It was voted on unanimously or near unanimously. There are conflicting reports. Apart from a dissenting opinion that was written and then that was delivered by Elizabeth Anscombe. I'm not sure if I've ever talked about her on the show. She was a dear friend of Iris Murdoch. She was one of four remarkable women philosophers uh, in Oxford in the middle of the 20th century. So it's Mary Midgley, Iris Murdoch, Philippa Foote, and Elizabeth Anscombe. Titans, forces of nature, uh, four people who revolutionized the way that we understand moral philosophy, the way we think about it. Anscombe objected strenuously, ferociously, excoriatingly to the decision of Oxford to confer this honorary degree. Um, At some points, she's quite insulting towards Truman. Uh, She refers to him as quite a mediocre man who did a spectacularly wicked thing, but could do that wicked thing without thereby becoming impressive. Again, with reference to Truman, she says, any fool can be as much of a knave as suits him. In other words, an idiot not knowing what they're doing by neglect, by unscrupulousness, can descend into evil by not being completely aware of the consequences uh, or the full ramifications of their actions. But then she criticizes Oxford University itself because she says, one can share in the guilt of a bad action by praise and flattery and also by defending it. So it's a kind of calling to account. Do we really, do we really want to praise the decision that Harry Truman made? Do we really believe that that decision was justified and that it's morally credible? Do we really believe that this man's act was an act of courage because the thing that he did was so bad? And this is not to to ignore the fact, well, I mean, we both talked about this. I think we both agree. There are moments when political leaders must do something that we could rightly regard as being morally horrible. And it's something that they perhaps would never quite forget with which they have to live the rest of their lives. So it's not that Political leaders have to have clean hands always or have to, be, have to be held to the standard of a moral saint. But she says in this instance, the decision to drop the two bombs, Harry Truman is guilty of something that she describes as murder. He was guilty of a massacre. Let me just read very, very briefly from her statement. She says, for men to choose to kill the innocent as a means to their ends is always murder, and murder is one of the worst of human actions. 
In the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, it was certainly decided to kill the innocents as a means to an end. And a very large number of them, all at once, without warning, without the interstices of escape or the chance to take shelter, which had existed even in the area bombings of the German city. And she was critical, by the way, Willie, of the fire bombings, the area bombings that took place in Germany and Dresden and Berlin, as well as the fire bombings that took place over um, a series of hours of Tokyo. She believed that there was something so grotesque about the decision not just to drop a bomb on these cities that would incinerate them, costing, I mean, over the course of a few months, it would eventually claim just shy of half a million lives. Um, but she says that, that it was also the decision to target innocents, namely non-combatants, as a means of achieving another end. Now, that end is to some extent up for debate. The end is certainly to some extent as a kind of um, penultimate objective or penultimate goal is to accelerate Japanese unconditional surrender. There is, by the way, a moral argument to be had about unconditional surrender itself. Um, we can get to that later if you like. But there was also, no doubt, a kind of posturing towards the East, in other words, posturing towards their erstwhile ally in the war, uh, Stalin and Soviet Russia. But then we get to, I think, the really crucial issue for me. There was an extent to which the mere existence of the bomb, once it came into existence, there was no doubt, there was no doubt for Leslie Groves, there was no doubt for Robert Oppenheimer, there was no doubt for Harry Truman. There was no doubt that once the bomb came into existence after the successful Trinity test in 1945, in July 1945, there was no doubt that the bomb would be used. The question was where and how to exact maximum damage. Now, let me just make two final points and I'm going to cede the floor to you. The first thing that's troubling and fascinating to me is that when deciding on the target, the targets were narrowed down to cities that had not suffered egregious firebombing previously in the war. Uh, those cities tended to be strong military targets, uh, places of munitions manufacture, or where Japanese troops were housed. The decision was made to select non-bombed targets because they wanted to get an accurate read of just the damage that that bomb could exact. If there was already large-scale bombing, then it was going to uh, interrupt or corrupt the data. I, I find that on any number of levels incredibly troubling. Um, a Japanese radiologist from University of Tokyo who worked with some of the teams of scientists who came to Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1946, said that what the U.S. had done was to inflict a human experiment on Japan to see what the bomb can do. It's very, very difficult, I think, to argue with that. The other choice that was made was to drop the bomb on two cities that were not strong military targets. In other words, to target innocence as a way of extending a logic that had built up over the course of the Second World War, which went something like this. Civilian morale, insofar as it buoys the spirit of a nation to continue conflict. Civilian morale 
is a legitimate object of military targeting. If you break the soul of a nation, if you break the soul of civilians, then the resolve of the nation itself will be broken as well. So let's just say that the end, however we want to determine that end, was it to accelerate Japanese absolute surrender? Was it to posture to Stalin just in case he wanted to turn against his erstwhile allies? Was it in anticipation of the Cold War? Was it to test the limits, the extent of this terrific, horrendous, uh, diabolical new technology and to exact that test on pristine locations, uh, locations that were not military targets? However one prosecutes that, Anscombe's point is to use the lives of innocence in order to achieve that end is always murderous. And therefore, the decision that was made, and there is some, there's historical grounds to believe that in a very real way, Truman was either confused about the targets, he was confused about the military status of the targets, he was confused about the timing of the targets. In a very real way, crucial decisions were left in the hands of the military themselves. In other words, Leslie Groves. There's also little doubt that Oppenheimer, I mean, we know for a fact that in the two weeks leading up to the dropping of the bomb, he advised at great length both of the pilots of the Enola Gay about the proper altitude at which point the bomb should be released and the altitude above the city at which point it should be detonated in order to achieve maximum damage. However you portray the ends, to use the lives of innocents as a means of achieving that end is morally culpable. She said it's an act of murder, and therefore honoring the decision, she said, makes Oxford University complicit, guilty by means of flattery and defense of that act of murder. And she says that ultimately it ends up becoming testament to the form of moral corruption that had taken place in the soul, in the heart of the deliberative body of the university itself. What do you think, Waleed? Was Anscombe well, right? The problem is I don't really have time to respond because we really should get to our guest. I would only flag, I'm broadly inclined to agree with the argument. I just think it, it runs into trouble with its absolutes. And as attracted as I am to those absolutes, I think they raise really complicated questions. For example, if you're going to say using innocence for your own purposes is always murder, this becomes complicated by the argument that actually the dropping of the bombs was an attempt and in fact did save lives, including innocent lives. Now, this becomes a hypothetical, perhaps, I was going to say empirical, maybe it's the opposite of empirical. It is the opposite of empirical. Um, argument about what we think the alternative would have been. Uh, it has to do with all sorts of unknowable questions like, would Japanese surrender have happened? Does Do things change, for example, if I tell you that the Japanese were working on a similar bomb? All these sorts of imponderable questions, which we'll probably discuss throughout the show, but we don't have time for me to go into now. The other thing is I would just point out, I think there's a tension in the way that was framed. This was calculated to cause maximum civilian damage, slash this was calculated to attack a pristine environment for better scientific observation. They're actually different things. Mm, that's right. In fact, they're opposite things. If you wanted maximum damage, you'd drop it on Tokyo, wouldn't you? 
Tokyo by that stage was decimated by firebombing. Yeah, but there's still more people in Tokyo than in those two relatively small cities. So if you if you want to kill lots of people, you'd choose a different target, it seems to me. I just think that when it comes to... Now, this is the problem. I feel like I'm snookered here because I'm now going to be sounding like I'm defending the dropping of these bombs, which I don't want to do because mm, I, mm. I don't like that. No, I understand. That, right? And my moral inclinations are opposed to it. But I just think sometimes the argument becomes reduced to something a little too simple. Even the idea of demonstration, and this is an argument you often hear, right? That they could have just demonstrated the power of these things. Well... You end up in this argument, people adduce documents to try to demonstrate what was in the mind and the hearts of other people, which is always a fraud exercise. Mm, mm. But the argument is, well, where would you demonstrate it in a way that wouldn't it have been conveniently ignored or reinterpreted and so on by the Japanese leadership? Um, even as it was, the bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, when the description of that was passed on to the Japanese leadership, we now have cables suggesting mm, that they, they were didn't trying it. to show that actually, no, this was really conventional bombing. In other words, trying to downplay it. Mm, that's right. um, if you drop it over an ocean somewhere, who sees it? Can it be denied? Mm. There's just so many dimensions to these. And so while I'm attracted to some of the moral principles here, I just think there's a there's a trickiness in the absolutism of the application. But mm. anyway, I've gone way too far. Uh, we've gone way too far with our time. And we have a guest. You know what we really need for a conversation like this? We need an ethicist who's interested in military ethics. We would also need someone who has thought pretty deeply about ethical leadership. I wonder where we could find... Oh, I know. Matt Beard happens to be an <laughs> ethicist with a particular interest in military ethics and technology. He's also the program director of the Vincent Fairfax Fellowship at the Kronlana Center for Ethical Leadership. He's also the resident philosopher on the AB BC's Short and Curly podcast. Matt, welcome back to the minefield. It's so nice to be back. Is it? <laughs> I must say, I'm. it's a lovely exercise in active listening, which I've forgotten the habit of doing when you're kind of forcibly muted and can't jump into a conversation, which is something I'm very good at. So it's a really good formative exercise for me. So Let it all out now, Matt. What did you hear that you want to leap on? So look, I mean, there's two ways that I think this conversation can play out, and I'm sure with more time we would do both and then some. One is to interrogate, as it feels like it's been going on, the morality of the decision and what is the what are the kind of concepts that we would use to describe um, and then evaluate the morality of the decision. So we've started to get into a kind of proportionate calculation of, you know, a conventional invasion of Japan and the casualties there by comparison, questions of the direct targeting of civilians, which within military ethics we call the principle of noncombatant immunity or discrimination and how significantly we should treat those kinds of questions. And we can try to do the kind of the moral calculus to spit out whether this turns out to have been the best decision or not. The other component that I'm interested in, and perhaps where I felt the conversation started with the positioning of, you know, the film, which I'll, I'll say I haven't seen either, um, and Oppenheimer's character and his status is, what do we think about leaders and how ought we think about leaders and how should leaders think about themselves when they are the ones who have to make these kinds of seemingly impossible, unconscionable trade-offs. And that seems to be a part of their role to make those kinds of choices. And I feel like the more time that we spend trying to resolve the former question about how we think about the morality in absolute terms, was this uh, the right decision? Was this the wrong decision? By which framework, yada, yada. The more we seem to park the second question, which is about 
Whether or not this turns out on some calculus to have been a morally defensible decision, I, I don't think it is. I don't think it holds up against most military ethical standards. Seems to be uh, to park the question. And that's indeed what Truman did after the fact, was to say this was a hard decision, this was a necessary decision, these were the reasons why, but not to wrestle with the moral weight. And Oppenheimer as a character, and we, I won't dive into the history, but as a character is an invitation to sit perhaps with the... For want of a better term, some of the moral tragedy that's involved, even if we accept the framing that this was a necessary choice, that doesn't end the conversation mm. um, because there's still a whole nother piece to explore around what we then do and how we then think about these people. Can I just pick up two quick things here? I, I think that's all really well put, Matt. Um, it's worth pointing out, I think, two important considerations here. Number one, it's not. I mean, just as a matter of history, and I think this factors immediately into the moral calculations we bring to this, um, it's not immediately apparent that the only two options were leveling two largely civilian populated cities versus a land invasion. We know, for instance, that on the 7th of August, Russia had invaded Japanese-occupied Manchuria, and that within days, Russia was going to pass over uh, into the northwest of Japan. In other words, between the first and the second bomb, there was already a new front. Um, we also know that Japan had made numerous entreaties to try to bring about some kind of surrender. What they could not countenance is the unconditional surrender. Now, I'm not just quibbling about history. The whole thing about the unconditional surrender, and this is where I think our moral reasoning about this often gets skewed, the very conditions of unconditional surrender were created by the knowledge of the existence of the bomb. Elizabeth Anscombe says this. It was the existence of the bomb which, if you like, exerted its own logic on the situation, whereby they had no, there was no interest on the part of the Allies to negotiate a just and a reasonable outcome, a reasonable surrender of Japan. In other words, the bomb empowered them with a degree of contemptuousness and heedlessness. I know that it's kind of common to say that there was a, an inherent racism that was involved in the decision to drop the bomb. You know, they, they, the Japanese weren't seen as being fully human and therefore not as being fully innocent or being fully victims in the same way that, say, Germans would have been fully victims. To my mind, that, that probably doesn't touch on what's at heart here. What's at issue is the bomb exerted its own logic. There was a preparedness to inflict murder that was embodied in the very existence of the bomb. And it was that preparedness that drove Groves, that drove Oppenheimer, that eventually empowered Truman. Not sorry, sorry, Scott, can I yeah. just jump in there? Doesn't that put too much on the, like, doesn't that isolate the bomb too much from the war? There was already an osmosis in this war, whereby civilians had become mm, a right. means to a particular end of morale destruction. This was not something that was isolated to the Americans by any stretch. No, that's right. So is it the bomb that's doing this, or is it the inherent logic of that war? And, you know, you can have an argument about most wars, but certainly about that war. The fact that you call it osmosis is exactly right, Waleed. I mean, Anscombe is very, is, is overt that the phenomenon of area bombing, the targeting of civilian morale, the indiscriminate bombing of huge portions of cities, these created an environment in which an unconscionable bomb could in fact be considered. 
But I think we do. But it's not the bomb that's doing that. But here, the, the bomb then becomes a symptom or it becomes epiphenomenal. Can I jump in on that? Because there's research here yeah. from the um, philosophy of technology that's actually really helpful to think about this. Because really, the bomb is just a technology, right? And so we can think about technology instrumentally to say, you know, guns don't kill people, people kill people, and kind of put the onus on people, we can then shift the focus and say, well, what kind of values and ideas and belief systems are encoded into this technology in the way that it's created? And that's sort of like the the notion of osmosis is a nice way of capturing mm, that, that mm. there's a sentiment at the time around what kind of effective military operations look like. And if we can scale those, and really the bomb is a, obliteration bombing at scale, then that seems really valuable. But the third piece that they often talk about in in the philosophy of technology is that the creation of a particular artifact affords particular behaviours in different ways. So some technologies will encourage certain kinds of behaviours and discourage other kinds of behaviours. So one question to pose, and I think this speaks to to the point you're trying to make, Scott, is what kind of behaviours are being encouraged by the existence of this bomb that weren't being encouraged prior to its existence? But I do agree we shouldn't put too much heavy lifting on that because this is a scale question. This is a a scale that we hadn't seen before, but it is a principle that had already been accepted by every single party in that war, really, to allow for the um, targeting of civilians through a misuse of a moral concept called the the doctrine of double effect that allowed both moralists and, and political leaders to justify wide-scale bombing of uh, civilian environments as a way of damaging morale to expedite the end of the conflict. And that was an extension on saying, well, sometimes in military operations, there will be inevitable civilian casualties that we accept as um, a byproduct of morally defensible military operations, which is the standard understanding of something like double effect. When we've taken steps to minimise and avoid those things, We sort of threw that out the window and said, well, that's actually not what's important anymore because it turns out that those side effects, those are the most powerful part from a military perspective. Mm. And also long-term, long-term they're saving lives. This is the other argument. So you can't run a minimisation argument against it because minimisation, rightly or wrongly, is already built into the idea of an expedited end to the war. Mm, That's it, right? So, and, And then we are playing thought experiments because it's about, well, what will happen if? And I think in some ways the way that this discussion since the dropping of the bombs has tried to uh, re-litigate this and discover new information that will lead to a smoking gun on who knew what or who was responsible and what different variables and was it in fact true that um, an invasion was going to lead to all of these casualties. Again, I wonder whether it's actually a way to turn away from a more mm. difficult moral question. That's right. I think that's right. Um, mm. And I think in my work, when I work with people who are closely involved with military decision-making now, I don't know if that exercise serves them because it becomes a matter of everything is determined by the context. And what gets missed, underemphasized, or seen as kind of naive are these questions of principle? And I think that's what Anscombe's objection is calling us to. We've talked a little bit about the substance of Anscombe's claim. We haven't talked about Anscombe as a leader in this moment and what she is doing and what she is inviting 
us to do, what she is inviting Oxford to do and to contemplate. But I think that that willingness to reconcile with the idea that you may not have clean hands in your decision-making when you are involved in certain kinds of choices. It may simultaneously, and the work of Michael Waltzer is very helpful here in talking about the idea of dirty hands, um, you may be simultaneously morally obligated to do something which remains morally abhorrent. And if you do find yourself thrown into that role, A, it does not wash your hands that it was morally necessary. You remain kind of morally culpable and subject to moral judgment and uh, punishment and all of those kinds of things as a product of that. And that's something we tend to reject today. But Mm. secondly, that part of the thing that you do when you take on certain responsibilities, and particularly responsibilities around political leadership, is that you take on the role of being, for want of a better term, an artifact of the collective moral consciousness. So your decisions are not merely litigated around your own personal culpability and guilt and innocence. Your decisions are also representations of the kinds of principles and values and ideas that that the common public want to be governed by and that it's morally important that they stand by. Mm. And that's part of the surrender. Now, Oppenheimer is interesting because he's not necessarily in the public eye in that way, but is a representation of that tension. Anscombe's not there. She's not having that conversation, except about Oxford, perhaps. But I think that's an invitation in this conversation as well, is to think about what does justice look like in these kinds of situations and what else is going on in the way that we explore and litigate these things? Setting it out that way is really helpful, Matt. But I think it shows a sort of endless dance that these two perhaps opposing approaches will be always stuck in. For example, if if you want to do as much decontextualization as possible in the hope of establishing abstract and potentially absolute principle, then I can well see the virtue in that. But if you apply it in too austere a way, if you apply it in such a way as to say, and you know, I think you've identified that we tend not to think this way now, um, in such a way as to say, well, even where all you have is tragic choices, you remain morally culpable for that, for the choice that you make. You have this perverse effect, I think, of saying, well, if ultimately I will be morally condemned, irrespective of what I do, because you're going to shear what I do off context and you're going to say that I have dirty hands because of circumstance that I can't avoid and circumstance that I didn't choose, whatever choosing circumstances means in this context, well, then it ultimately doesn't matter what I do, does it? Mm. The trouble, Waleed, is that the reverse is true. Because right, the more know, that know, you but, look but, at context, but, the more people go to start to cherry pick or be selective in the kind of data. And so what what I guess this is helpful in pointing to is this, it's very hard to have this conversation when we have this underlying, this very existential habit of wanting to turn away from genuine moral responsibility well, um, except in that, one way uh, we or also, another. We also very keen to turn other people towards moral responsibility, mm. which is part of this, right? That there is a keenness, I think, to judge Truman's conduct for very good reasons, but also for reasons that are to do with, I guess, being able to sheet the blame home <laughs> to, to someone else or, or 
like it's it's not an uncomfortable thing to judge someone else morally in their circumstance, even where it's appropriate to do so. Right. I, th- I think about something I heard an Australian politician once say when he first entered politics. He won his seat, and uh, he woke up the next morning, and I think his wife said to him, "Well, half the electorate hates you now." Um, and he said something really interesting. He said the way he thinks of his job is politicians are people that to whom the electorate outsources decisions they don't want to make mm. so that they can reserve the right to hate them for making them. Mm. And I wouldn't want to take that approach too far, but there is a certain, I think, insight there that points to a certain... I don't know what you want to call it. Is it cowardice or is it hypocrisy on the part of people like us that we are very comfortable not having to make these decisions but P- then yeah. being able to judge them? Pierre Rosavello while he calls it negative sovereignty. I think it's that's exactly right. It's a preparedness to kind of withdraw consent rather than to actively empower our representatives. Can, mm. I, can I just ask the two of you, though? There is a difference between judging Truman and, to keep going with this analogy— and to withhold assent to him being honored. Yeah, I agree with that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's subtly crucial here, because for Anscombe, Oxford misunderstood the notion of courageous leadership. She did also accuse him of being a war criminal, so it, it's not well, as though she Well, of murder, not, not, not yeah, exactly sorry. a war criminal. War, I'm, I'm importing our pre- earlier I know, conversation. I know, I know. Yeah, yeah, but of murder. So she's making a moral judgment, I'm not saying her moral judgment She's unentitled to make. But But she's saying that flattery, she's saying that flattery is inappropriate. So even if we say, even if we say that that Truman is a kind of tragic leader who was faced with, let's give him the benefit of the doubt and say that this was an impossible decision, even then, even then, it would be wrong to honor him. If he's a tragic leader, it would be wrong to honor him Mm. because that misunderstands the nature of the honor that people assent in order to accord to another. So one can be grateful in a perverse way for the hard decisions that difficult leaders in impossible times have to make. But to then praise them for doing the hard things, the wicked but, things, because But is that time, just hypocrisy at that point? Matt, what I'm going to be grateful, but I'm not going to... So uh, Anscombe's not going to want to extend gratitude, for one thing. Um, And and Anscombe's character, I think, is relevant here. She was a very, I want to say, severe um, (laughs) and principled woman who would have taken inflexibility about principles to be a virtue. Mm, And that is at work in this document. And it's part of what makes her noteworthy as a leader in this moment. There's a separate conversation about to what extent that is virtuous in leadership. But But can we just just interpose here? We do need people like that. Yes, unquestionably, because otherwise we get stuck in these conversations and no one makes a decision. However... So Anscombe's not going to want to extend that kind of claim of gratitude, not necessarily am I. And I think the the notion here is, firstly, I want to be really clear in saying that it is not my view that we ought to be thankful or that Americans ought to be thankful that the bombs were dropped, mm. even though it was morally heinous and we ought to respond to those. I think it was morally wrong on purely on the kind of the philosophy of it and the, looking at the moral considerations at play. That's a conversation that we can dive into more. However, the the significance, and, and I think the conversation around honouring that we're talking about here and, and Anscombe's argument there is, it's a little bit more complicated because I don't know that it's true 
that you can't honor a tragic leader. However, I don't think it, that it's true that you can only honor a mm, tragic leader. And how we respond, and this is at the heart of this, is this kind of desire to square this algorithmically and not have anything that a New Zealand philosopher named Rosalind Hursthouse calls moral remainder. The idea that there's some really funky, ineffable hangover when it comes to making moral choices that doesn't fit neatly into a binary category of defensible or indefensible, honourable, not honourable. There's this kind of residue that these kinds of complex decisions leaves. So I think, and I'm backtracking here in sort of the significance of context, for Anscombe, the context is important. The positioning of Truman as courageous for this choice and positioning this as a virtuous choice that was made, I think is the thing that she is most strongly objecting to. And it's hard to disagree on that, isn't it? I mean, I I, I think so. Absolutely. And we see this now today, you know, and and to contextualise some of this, um, there is a very strong response from members of both the civilian and defence and veteran community that positions some of the allegations in the Brereton report and some of the war crimes that were committed and alleged there in the same vein, that these were necessary choices made by hard men and they needed to be made. And thank goodness we have people who have the courage to break the rules when they need to. That is a prevailing narrative today. Yeah. So these are not these are not old conversations. These still exist and we need to look that head on because that notion that we have to try to paint actions, paint characters and paint people either by doing too much work to let them off the hook and emphasise the tragedy and their lack of agency or by overemphasising their agency and responsibility and discounting all of the other factors that might be relevant here, including the fact that this was a morally complicated decision even on an intellectual level the time pressures, the ambiguities around um, what information was available, as well as then trying to say, well, how do we reconcile the fact that on both sides, you were the one who had to do this? Raymond Gate is beautiful on this kind of work. The idea that we can't lose the person in the principle, that sense it's not just like that this thing was done and what do we think of it? It's that it was I or it was you that did it. And what does that sense that you are the one on whom this responsibility falls? We don't have a good language, a good moral language for exploring and describing that. I think that's why we turn Mm. to story to do it. Mm. Yeah, and it's you making that decision with all the limitations, with all the imperfections in knowledge, with all the conflicting imperatives. And who has to then carry that. Yeah, that's right. So Matt Matt and Waleed. Yep. 1st of May, 1956, the two of you are sitting in the old Bodleian Library. The vote is taken. Dissenting voices are called for. Do the two of you join in objecting with Anscombe, or do you join with the university in conferring the honorary degree on Truman? I think my answer to that question is cheap, because I think it is so easy for me to say from this distance, I dissent, Mm. I join Anscombe. But I have no idea what it was like to be alive in 1956 with the threat of Nazism and the the horrors of the Second World War fresh in my memory and victory having been delivered at that moment 
perhaps in my mind, biobombing like that, hmm. me having to contemplate what the alternative would have been. And I don't know. I feel I feel like the further you get away from it, the easier it is for me to criticise, which I think speaks well for Enscombe, by the way. Um, hmm. And I would very happily and easily now say I would be on her side, but maybe I would, I'm just fooling myself. Mm-hmm. Matt? Yeah, I'm, I'm inclined to agree in the sense that I, I talk a lot with leaders that I work with around this, that I can throw a number of thought experiments like this at people and usually with the joy of distance, they're able to identify with their best selves and what they would do. We know from research that unless every person I've spoken to is a statistical outlier, they probably aren't going to do that because mm. group dynamics are incredibly mm. powerful yeah. and, and that's going to play as much of a role as anything. So I don't think that I'm particularly a particularly strong moral outlier. So as much as I would like to think and work every day to try to be more like the person who's standing with Anscombe, I really don't think I probably would have in that moment. But, but also much easier to criticise something like the dropping of those bombs when the threat that that was at least ostensibly countering isn't real to you. When it's mm. And there are other figures who were book. at the time, um, sort of during the war. So there's a, a Catholic theologian named John Ford who was openly critical of obliteration bombing whilst the practice was still being undertaken. And Anscombe is continuing with that with that tradition and drawing on some of those ideas in her work. But certainly, like, with the space of, you know, I think it's 12 years or so, the the difference that that plays is, is going to be significant, yeah. Mm. There's, there's also powerful opposition within the Manhattan Project itself, including within Los Alamos. Matt, thank you. Pleasure. It's been way too long. We should have had you on. Well, just come back next week. I don't even know what the topic is, but just come back. Let's uh, do it. Matt Beard is the um, pro. You can, in fact, you can host. I can take a week off. Scott would enjoy it immensely, I suspect. He wouldn't have to talk about cricket or anything like that. Um, Matt Beard is the program no, director of the that. Vincent Fairfax Fellowship at the Cranlana Centre for Ethical Leadership, our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield, which is over now. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.